Federal health officials are sounding an alarm this morning after a startling discovery. Defense Department researchers announced the arrival of a nightmare bacteria right here in the U.S. They say the superbug is resistant to one of our strongest antibiotics. The head of the CDC says it is the end of the road for antibiotics unless we act urgently. In 2050, there might be as many as 50 million individuals globally who will die from a antibiotic-resistant bacterial infection. And if that's not a pandemic, I don't know what is. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. We've seen how COVID preys on the frail and the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions. We've learned how it causes deadly immune reactions called cytokine storms that can make it impossible to breathe. And we've heard about children having strokes after COVID caused an exotic anti-inflammatory illness known as Kawasaki disease. But today we're going to cover the killer in this crisis about which you may have heard nothing. It's COVID-related, but it's not a virus at all. It's insidious bacteria that have evolved in ways that outwit us. Secondary bacterial infections triggered by the body's response to COVID are common and can be lethal. This is a crisis we should have seen coming because antibiotic resistance has been a huge societal problem long before the pandemic. Five different antibiotic-resistant superbugs have been found in COVID patients. If you contract one, it's a coin toss whether you're going to survive. Today, in the first of a two-part series, we're going to shine a light on antimicrobial resistance. The death toll from the other pandemic is much higher than you might think. While the biopharmaceutical industry has stepped up in a big way to take on COVID, with more than 600 vaccines and treatments now in development, antibiotic innovation presents a totally different set of challenges. There's been a complete market failure and, frankly, a failure of Congress. And if we don't get serious and fix it, superbugs will kill more of us than COVID. AMR stands for antimicrobial resistance. That's medical shorthand for the reality that too many antibiotics have stopped working on too many people. Doctors, of course, who see the human toll of AMR are desperate to address the lack of innovation in the antibiotic space. My first guest today is a biotech entrepreneur who knows all about the struggle to keep up with and defeat superbugs that confront doctors. That's because he was one not a superbug, he was a doctor. And Dr. Evan Lowe is a Harvard-trained cardiologist who left the practice of medicine to make medicine. And today, as CEO of Paratech, he leads a company that defied the odds and actually commercialized a new antibiotic to treat community-acquired pneumonia. There were 3 million U.S. cases last year alone, and that was before COVID. So, Evan, welcome to IMBio. 
Thank you very much, Jim. My pleasure to be here. So, as a physician, you performed heart transplants. Then you taught some of the brightest young medical minds as a medical school faculty member at Harvard and at the University of Pennsylvania. What did you see as a cardiologist that led you to become a biotech entrepreneur and help lead this fight to create new antibiotics? As a transplant cardiologist, uh, antibiotics were actually my friend, you know, because, you know, when you perform a heart transplant in someone who has a desperately ill situation with a failing heart, you actually, when you perform a heart transplant, you save their lives, but you actually uh, basically exchange the disease of end-stage heart failure for a disease of immunosuppression. And when individuals have to live with immunosuppressive medicines for the rest of their life to prevent rejection, they're always at a risk for infection. And we were always worried every single day after a transplant about viral infections, but also bacterial infections. And because of that, you know, antibiotics are a class of medicines that we thought about and used each and every day. And so as I thought about a transition into the pharmaceutical drug development area, I was wondering where could I make a difference? And so I made a jump. And never look back. And you will probably, I think, undoubtedly save more lives with the kind of work you're doing now than you could even with the noble work of, of being a cardiologist and, and doing heart transplantations. I say that because AMR is killing something like 160,000 Americans every year. And that's actually more lives than we've lost so far this year from COVID. So I've heard AMR called a second pandemic. There's no CNN ticker for people who die because their doctor couldn't find an antibiotic to treat their infection. But perhaps there should be. So how deadly is the AMR problem and how much worse do you think it could get? Well, Jim, I think you've captured it exactly right. I think people have an underappreciation for the fact that antimicrobial resistance is an ongoing pandemic that's only going to get worse if we are not able as an industry to provide new technologies to defeat these superbugs. A phrase that I like to use uh, is bugs always win. And what, what does that mean? That means that, in fact, we have to stay ahead of the innovation curve and bringing new research and development uh, opportunities forward in order to provide these new, new antibiotics. But I think what's really happened over the last 20 plus years I think we've really fallen behind in that innovation curve. And I think it's important to place it into historical context. You know, the introduction of antibiotics, specifically penicillin, and the introduction of clean water were the two real innovations in the early decades of the 20th century that appreciably increased the life expectancy here in the U.S. Today, though, because of the dearth of new innovations in the antibiotic era, I think for some patients, even today, when they have these multidrug resistant superbugs, they are in the pre-penicillin era today. And I think that that's quite frightening. I think maybe we ought to give our listeners a little crash course in, in, in what we mean when we say superbug, because I think a lot of people would say, well, if this antibacterial, um, antimicrobial worked 10 years ago, why the heck doesn't it work today? Or it worked 40 years ago. Why does it's the same um, the same drug. Um, obviously, the drug's not changing, but the bugs are changing. And uh, you're the scientist, I'm not. But my understanding is what happens is when microbes um, reproduce, 
periodically, the genetics aren't precisely the same. So there's a slight variation. And probably most times that variation doesn't have much impact on the ability of the microbe to resist the antimicrobial. But random selection uh, working the way it does, every once in a while, one of those uh, genetic mutations uh, makes the uh, makes the, the microbe um, no longer uh, subject to the means of attack, if you will, of the of the microbial, and then they're the ones that survive to reproduce. Um, and so they're not really uh, super duper bugs. It's not. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's not that they that they have new and strange powers. It's just that they've altered themselves in a way that is no longer susceptible to the the mechanism of action of the antimicrobial. Am I close to right about that? Yeah, I think you're spot on, Jim. You know, nature humbles us each and every day. And I think as a physician, I was humbled every day. And I think that's how you become, you know, a world-class physician is that you're always uh, going into every clinical situation with humility to know that there's probably something right in front of you here that you don't actually understand and you need to get smarter about. And what we've learned about bacteria is that they are very smart. They've been around for you know, millennium before uh, humans were on the face of this earth and they'll be here, you know, for millennium after we're gone. And I think that they've learned through either changes of genetics, as you've said, uh, to actually be able to change their DNA so that they can produce new bacteria that are resistant to currently available antibiotics. And sometimes these bacteria even have the ability to actually create what are called pumps. These are on the membranes of these bacteria where they actually can grab the antibiotic mm. and throw it out of the throw it out of the bacterial cell so it can't even get to where it needs to get in order to work. And so these 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 bacteria are really smart. And that's why I say bugs always win. And you've got to stay ahead of the innovation curve because if you if you fall behind the innovation curve, if you continue to use an antibiotic where there's resistance, that just actually continues to select for the survivors, right? And the survivors are the ones that have these unique mechanisms to circumvent these resistance mechanisms. And so then all of a sudden your population gets larger and larger and larger and larger. And at some point, you know, you have a fall off in terms of survival of humans. I mean, it's, it's true with COVID today, right? Just think about COVID as a viral pathogen, but we have nothing to stop its replication, its growth. And so it basically, when it infects a human, it basically is able to traffic wherever it need, wherever it can go, wherever it, you know, feels like it, it, it can go. And then all of a sudden takes up residence in the lungs. It takes up residence in the kidneys. It takes up residence in the central nervous system. And then it reproduces and basically has a re, you know, has a party in that organ and ultimately leading to, unfortunately, in some patients, the destruction of those organs leading to patients actually dying. Well, that is indeed humbling when you think about uh, how smart we think we are, and we are pretty smart as humans. We have these great brains, and and collectively we put our minds and knowledge together, and we can do amazing things. And to be uh, consistently outwitted by these microscopic little non-thinking bugs is uh, indeed humbling. What have we learned from viral pandemics about how susceptible we are to serious bacterial infections. This is a situation in which when you have viruses that are attacking, let's say the lining of the lungs, which is a protective surface against some of the bacteria that exists within our lung surfaces, it can lead to a secondary bacterial pneumonia. 
15 to 20% of patients with COVID today are presenting with secondary bacterial infections. But if you have one of those secondary bacterial infections, the data suggests that one in two patients, 50% of those patients will go on to die. And so what we've also learned is that there is a, there is a very rapid progression. And the question for doctors has always been, are you willing to wait? 48 hours or 72 hours to see whether you were smart enough to figure out whether it was bacterial or viral. And in the case of COVID right now, there's actually a limited toolbox. All we really have are prevention and containment measures that we've talked about that are really important, but we don't have therapies. We just have ventilators and oxygen, which are basically supportive care only. But if you do have a secondary bacterial infection, let's say you have a pneumonia at the time, we do have actually potentially therapies that could address that. And when you don't have the time to wait, you need to have that antibiotic available at that moment for a doctor to be able to prescribe it because the longer you wait, the more advanced the potential bacterial infection is. And at some point with every bacterial infection, you cross a line of severity where the probability that the antibiotic intervention can make a difference and save that person's life actually diminishes almost to the point of zero. And so you want that antibiotic to be available early to be treat, to have that patient treated, you know, efficiently and early, and you don't have time to wait for those cultures. And so doctors need every available tool in front of them to be able to make the best choices, depending upon the clinical presentation of those patients. Well, we just went through this in my family, my 98 and a half year old mother, uh, was diagnosed with pneumonia just a couple of months ago, uh, and wound up in the hospital. And we, you know, we had her tested for COVID, and thankfully that turned out to be negative. But uh, she was very close to um, to dying. And so she's off the oxygen now, and she's doing well. And and uh, knock on wood, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 killed 50 million people, and most of those fatalities were from secondary pneumonia. Then in 2018, exactly a century later, you got FDA approval for a new antibiotic to treat community-acquired pneumonia. We know COVID can cause all kinds of serious respiratory complications, as you were just saying, but how big a problem is pneumonia in the COVID pandemic, and how can your new drug help? You know, since you talked about your 98-and-a-half-year-old mother, my father is 93. Uh, He's a few years younger than your mom, (laughs) Uh, but he's got pretty bad asthma. And about 10 weeks ago, he presented to me, you know, with a cough, shortness of breath, and he had a fever. And, uh, you know, he still with my mom and living independently. And I went out to examine him and his lungs sounded terrible and it sounded like he had a pneumonia. And I had a discussion with his, with his internist and he said, well, would you like to be tested for a COVID? And I said, well, it really doesn't make a difference, does it? Because we have no therapies. And I said to him, look, it sounds like he has a pneumonia. You know, my dad's quarantined. And uh, he, you know, his doctor said, well, what do you think based upon your exam? I think he's got a pneumonia. And I said, well, why don't we just give him Nuzira, which is Paratech's product, treat it early, and maybe it can make a difference. And so that's what we did. We gave him some bronchodilators for his asthma. We gave him Nuzira. And, you know, it was on some level, uh, you know, nihilistic in the sense that, if it was COVID, there's not anything you could do, right? And at that age, you know what the more mortality statistics look like. Uh, at the end of the day, though, seven days later, guess what? 
His lungs were pristine. They were clear. And Uzira was the right antibacterial at that point in time. And if he had COVID, I don't really know whether he did or not. And at the end of the day, it didn't matter because there was nothing I could do from an intervention standpoint. And so this is where antibacterial therapy is absolutely necessary in order to be able to actually be effective as a country in dealing with this particular COVID pandemic. Well, I'm glad your your dad made it like my mom did. All of my mother's children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren were FaceTiming her and sending flowers and and, and all this, <laughs> thinking that she was uh, you know on her last days. And uh, after she got all better, she said, I'm, I'm kind of a little embarrassed that I didn't die after all that attention. <laughs> we're, we're, we're glad she's still with us. She, she, she and my dad and I went skydiving when they were both 77, so she's a pretty tough, tough person. Good for her. You know, antibiotics are the one category of medicines that are clearly life-saving. Yeah. No one ever debates that. And it's a life-saving intervention that if you don't have it, you look at yourself and wonder, wow, in this great country with the depth of science and the depth of technology and with the brain trust that we have here today, why don't we have that? There's been a dearth of innovation in the antibiotic space for decades, and we're not keeping up with the superbugs. Some reports say AMR could kill more people than cancer by 2050. And yet most big pharma companies and most biotech investors have pulled out of this space. Startups and smaller biotechs focused on antibiotics are going bankrupt at historic rates. Why is that? These statistics are, are quite daunting. I think you're referring to the O'Neill report that said in 2050, there might be as many as 50 million individuals globally who will die from a antibiotic-resistant bacterial infection. And if that's not a pandemic, I don't know what is. I think when you look at the business model here with, uh, with antibiotics, it's been... I think, um, I think characterized by a commercial model where uh, because of trying to, you know, save, quote unquote, antibiotics uh, for when they are really needed to decrease the rate of resistance through a concept called antimicrobial stewardship, which I think is, I think, a, an admirable and important uh, uh, surveillance uh, mechanism that, that has been put in place. I think it's the concept of leaving it kept on the shelf and break glass only in an emergency type of approach for antibiotics has, I think, really, you uh, know, in a, in a big way, I think, slowed the commercial success model uh, for utilization. I think the saving concept of, of keep it on the shelf is, I think, very reasonable. But where stewardship has gone awry is that today, Jim, the antibiotics are not even on the shelf because formulary committees and uh, hospitals basically have what, what I, I characterize as a disincentive based upon an antiquated reimbursement system to actually utilize these new antibiotics. And they're afraid that if they were to even put them on the shelf, that doctors would go out of control and use these antibiotics to a point where there would be resistance. So if you, or your, your mom or my dad would present to a hospital today, they don't even have access to these antibiotics because the formula committees are telling us no. That's their way of protecting their current, um, current financial model, which uh, you know, runs at a low cost margin. We are not going to actually even allow the doctors to even have the choice. And so it's really a, a, a model that is um, one that I think is broken 
And it's one where I think there needs to be potentially some legislative and or regulatory changes that could actually uh, create the right incentives to allow doctors to have the choice to use the best antibiotic for the right patient at the right time. Well, you know, this is a, you mentioned Congress has to act, and I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, we, we're stuck in a place here now where many of the liberal members of Congress don't want to do anything at all that is perceived to be giving an, an economic incentive to drug companies, which is so, so short-sighted. And then you have some on the right hand of the political spectrum that uh, believe that Adam Smith's invisible hand of capitalism will will uh, solve everything. But um, uh, that just doesn't work under the current system. And if Congress doesn't act, we're going to have a you know, continue to have this total market failure. I currently serve as a chairman of the Antimicrobials Working Group. We're about 13 or 14 biotech companies. We represent about 95% of the innovation today in terms of new antibiotic development. The innovation here is not representative of big pharma. And, you know, we are companies that generally have one product, if we get the product approved and ultimately launch it, we've got to get to profitability. That you know it could take two, three, four years to get there, and it's expensive. It's in a very capital-intensive business with the pandemic shining a very, very big light on the need for pandemic preparedness. I think that there's an opportunity here to think about other sources of what we refer to as potentially unique public-private partnerships to create pull incentives that can actually help the antibiotic sector as well, not only realize the value of that innovation, but to actually potentially move some of these antibiotics into the strategic national stockpile as a resource uh, if and when the next pandemic comes forward that is actually bacterial in nature as opposed to viral in nature as well. It's increasingly obvious that our national stockpile needs to include innovative antibiotics for the next pandemic or even a bioterror attack. And the U.S. government has just made a big investment in your company, Paratech, to make sure your product is available under what we call the BioShield program. BioShield uh, was a program put in place and signed into law by George W. Bush following our 9-11 attacks, specifically to uh, create for the strategic national stockpile opportunities to add new, new antibiotic technologies against potential bioterrorism organisms. And as I mentioned to you earlier, one of the attributes of our product, Nuzira, is its multiple potential indications. We looked at anthrax, we looked at plague, we looked at tularemia and glanders, and those are particularly bad bio bioterrorism organisms that appear on BARDA's, what they refer to as their wheel of misfortune. They uh, awarded us a grant of $285 million. Uh, three main components of it. One was to uh, provide us dollars to develop uh, Nuzira through the animal rule for anthrax. We're very pleased about that. Uh, second of all, it was actually, there was, they were pressing about this last year that they wanted us to actually create a, an additional supply chain for our product Nuzira completely on U.S. soil. And this is before, obviously, the, the uh, COVID pandemic and some of the verbiage that's coming out of the White House in terms of having a U.S. supply chain. And so we, we are now in the process of, of, of doing tech transfer to move our entire supply chain as an additional supply chain, not in, in place of our European-based supply chain, but having it fully based in the U.S. And finally, there is a commitment to actually procure up to 10,000 treatment courses 
of Musira for the treatment of anthrax. Well, that's good news, but I expect it's going to be the, the government's going to do a lot, have to do a lot more of that, make similar kinds of investments in, in similar kinds of companies if we're really going to have a national stockpile that's going to be broad enough to protect us against such a broad range of, uh, of pathogens. I think you're absolutely right. I think this COVID pandemic has uh, highlighted uh, the gaps in uh, pandemic preparedness that we have. And I think it'll go beyond just about terrorism space. It'll go on to, uh, I think, more bread and butter uh, pandemic preparedness needs for uh, bacterial resistant uh, pathogens, as well as other, other viral infections as well. Well, Congress could play a huge role here with some pretty straightforward statutory fixes. There was a provision in the Senate version of the last COVID package to do this, but House Democrats stripped it out the last minute, and that's very unfortunate. So I, I'm sure you've spent some time talking to members of Congress, but if you had if you had all of those naysayers sitting in front of you, what would you say to them? You know, you never want to be in a conversation as a doctor saying to yourself or even to a patient's family who might ask, did you have another antibiotic? Is there something else you could have used to save my mother, father, brother, sister, grandmother, grandfather's life? And you never want to say, you know what, there was one there, but I just chose not to use it because I wanted to save it on a population basis for the future. Um, and I think that's what we're talking about here. How optimistic are you about the science of uh, getting to where we need to be and, and about the politics? I, I think that I'm optimistic about both. Uh, and maybe you can call me thick-headed around, <laughs> around that statement. I would say that the science is fantastic. I think the challenge there is that those, those new technologies you know, may get advanced to a parking lot where there's no exit. I think, I think when, we, when we're on the Hill and we talk to folks in the House, folks in the, uh, on the Senate side, their staffers, they all understand how important this is. And uh, they've said very consistently that you know, not only is this a bipartisan or bicameral issue, but it should be a no-partisan issue uh, at the end of the day, because I think every American should have access to this, uh, to this new technology. And we're not giving up, uh, Jim. Uh, we see family members uh, as part of the uh, motivation here that I would just think that they must have uh, th this technology uh, for us to, uh, uh, I think, be able to put our heads down on our pillows at night that we brought the best forward that we possibly can uh, as a nation, recognizing our innovation, but also recognizing the unmet clinical needs. Well, if the members of Congress and other policymakers can't look at this COVID pandemic and, and recognize that by failing to be prepared for it, um, we've cost uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives uh, and suffering and cost into the healthcare system and the breakdown of the entire global economy, um, then nothing will teach them that. But uh, I'm, I'm optimistic as you are. I think that, that we are learning lessons here. And, and I want to thank you, not just for being with us today on this podcast, but for all the amazing work that you and your, your colleagues at, at Baratech have done and the work that you're doing with your coalition, both on the science and on the politics. And uh, Keep it up because, um, uh, as we said in the very beginning, the, the number of lives that you'll be able to save are just really quite uncountable and immeasurable. Well, thank you, Jim. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have this opportunity. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the IMBiopod 
with your family and friends. And to learn more about the work of heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. On our next episode, we'll conclude our two-part series with some hope. 20 drug companies just announced a billion-dollar investment to help small biotechs deliver novel antibiotics that can outwit the superbugs. And we're closer than ever before to passing the Disarm Act and creating a market for life-saving antibiotic innovation. Learn how we can beat the superbugs next Monday on I Am Bio. Thank you.